If you've got one of the church Bibles, reading is on page 372, page 372, and it's the second book of Kings, chapter 5. 2 Kings, chapter 5, it's the second half of chapter 5. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that, that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you won't, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But make the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had travelled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running towards him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes? Or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see so many uh, familiar faces in front of me, and of course, a very warm welcome to everyone who's watching online. Let's start with a quick prayer. Lord, I pray that I would be led by your spirit and be faithful to your word. Let us have ears to hear and a heart to receive. Amen. <laughs> Sorry. So you can now hear my voice in all its booming glory. There we go. Now today, as you know we, from the reading, we are talking about Gehazi. This is a servant 
who went behind the back of the great prophet Elisha to extract money from a grateful commander of a foreign army, that's Naaman, who had been healed by the Lord. And he's often seen as an archetypal figure who gave in to greed, and that greed ultimately ruined him. But Gehazi's actions, and frankly, his ill-conceived notion that God would not see what he had done and reveal it to the prophet Elisha, is symptomatic of something even more serious. Gehazi had got casual with God. He was no longer living in the fear of the Lord and he'd lost his reverence for God. And just to unpack that for a moment, I think it's helpful to reflect on what Gehazi's response should have been when he was offered money for Naaman's healing. It should have been, we did not heal you and cannot take credit for something that we did not do. You are owed nothing. God alone healed you and all glory goes to God. And indeed, we see that this is the essence of Elisha's response earlier in the passage. He says, as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will accept nothing. And Gehazi fell into grave error because he was willing to take the glory that belonged to God. His desire for money was greater than his fear of the Lord. And it's this aspect of Gehazi's story, his failure to hold God in sufficient reverence, which I want to focus on today, to examine how this concept of the fear of the Lord is critical to our walk with Christ. Now, the fear of the Lord is an expression which is sometimes misunderstood and for the avoidance of doubt it obviously doesn't mean that you should be carrying the corner somewhere worried that God is going to hit you with a shoe or smite you or something. Not at all. It is in essence biblical shorthand for the recognition and understanding of the greatness, glory, majesty and omnipotence of God and acting accordingly. When we truly see who God is, the natural reaction is all wonder and reverence. We know that the angels living in the presence of God continually cry, holy, holy, holy. And the best, and that earthly analogy I could think of, is when you see mighty waves at sea. Now, I used to go out to South Africa a lot to see my grandmother, always in their winter time, and there'd be huge storms. She lived down on the wild coast. And there'd be 30 foot waves. And I remember going down to the sea and watching these towering walls crashing over what was coincidentally called pulpit rock and just being in awe of its power. I was insignificant in comparison to this great force of nature. And it is this sense of awe that we is encapsulated by that phrase, fear of the Lord. And Gehazi had lost that sense of reverence. In that moment where he was tempted to take the money, he thought he could take glory to belong to God. And what's more, that God would not see and that there would be no consequences for what he had done. And I think that we're often sometimes tempted to, or guilty of falling into that same line of thinking. It may not manifest in us as greed, as it did with Gehazi, but we get off track when we minimize who God is. And I sometimes think that arises because we obviously know God 
as a merciful God, a personal God who loves us and has chosen to have a personal relationship with us, that we sometimes forget the sheer magnitude of who he is. Certainly woke anyone up who was sleeping by this point. So why is the fear of the Lord important to our walk with Christ? Or put another way, why is it important to have a true revelation of the greatness and majesty of God? Well, I'm going to highlight five ways in which I think it's highly relevant to our Christian life. Although, of course, I think you could think of more. And before you all inwardly sigh, because I know you're too polite to express that externally, uh, just be assured I am well aware of the timings this morning and I will canter through these points. So I, I, you will appreciate that I have to touch on them lightly and I'm sure Rupert will have a sermon on each of them at some point in the future. But the first way in which the fear of the Lord is important is that it keeps us striving for holiness. And we can see this from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 1 and 5. In the, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And verse 5, his response to seeing that is, Woe is me, he cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. What this passage pithily reveals is that we cannot see the Lord, have a true revelation of who he is, and not come away acutely aware of how far we fall short. And this is obviously not so we can beat ourselves up. We know from Romans 8 verse 1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the fear of the Lord and understanding the holiness of God will inevitably instill in us a desire to purify ourselves and to repent. And when we have a revelation of how powerful God is and who he is, and yet how gentle he chooses to be with us, it compels us to acknowledge our shortcomings and call upon his grace. For we know, as it says in Romans 2 verse 4, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And now repentance, far from being an old-fashioned word as, or concept as some might suggest, it's actually an incredibly powerful and liberating thing which is central to our walk with Christ. By God's grace, we get to acknowledge our sins to God, not so he can beat us up with them, no, so he can take them away and cast them as far as the east is from the west and wash us whiter than snow. It's a liberating thing, coming close to God, recognizing his greatness, enables us to identify where we need to clean ourselves up so that God can help us and we can get ourselves free from those entanglements. Secondly, the fear or reverence of the Lord keeps us from error. When we get casual with God, I think there's a real temptation for us to also get casual with the, with the word of God, the scriptures. If what the Bible says becomes a little bit inconvenient for our everyday life, we're tempted to fudge it a little bit. We add shades of grey where it's black and white. And often this is because our fear of man is greater 
than our fear of the Lord. And we're warned against this in Proverbs 29, verse 35. The fear of others lays a snare, but the one who trusts in God is secure. And similarly, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. When we get the balance right, when we revere God more than the opinion of others, it helps us to stay faithful to his word and to stand up for what is right. Thirdly, the fear of the Lord helps us to keep our eyes on the right goal. When we have a true revelation that all glory belongs to God, that he alone is worthy of praise, we can stop trying to chase glory for ourselves. And this has a a two-pronged benefit. First, it obviously helps us not to be proud, and that's uh, once we understand that all of our worldly success is as a result of God's grace, it inevitably means we've got no logical basis for taking the glory for ourselves. And we know that's important because God resists the proud. But critically, and this is what I want to pick up on, it also liberates us to live the life that God has called us to live without worrying whether we're going to make a big enough mark or going to be successful enough or we're going to be important enough. Because when we are successful in the world's eyes, we can take no glory. The success is by God's grace and all glory belongs to God. And there's a real freedom in letting go of chasing gold stars and accolades and keeping our eyes on Jesus. And these two threads are beautifully drawn together, I think, in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, where it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in due time he may exalt you. When you get out of the way, when you humble yourselves before the Lord, recognizing that all glory belongs to God, you give room for the Lord to use you and to lift you up. Fourthly, it keeps us generous. Why? Well, because a revelation of who God is and his power puts the material things that we have in context. From just a cursory glance at the scriptures, we know, take Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that all things have been created through him and for him. Everything belongs to God. Everything. He created it. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. It all belongs to him. And flowing on from that, James 1, verse 17, further explains every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. In short, nothing that we possess is anything other than a manifestation of God's grace. When we realize that what we hold in our hands is not something that we're entitled to, but a blessing from God, it empowers us to shake off that desire to hoard and to actively pass on the blessing. In fact, if we think about it, it's nonsensical for us to hold on to possessions if we hear the Lord asking us to give. For on a proper analysis, it's simply not ours to hold on to in the first place. And fifthly and finally, the fear of the Lord or reverence of the Lord 
helps to keep us encouraged. I think all of us at times can slip into underestimating God and forgetting the true nature of who he is. Circumstances can get too much or a task ahead of us can seem insurmountable. And it's in those moments we need to remind ourselves of who God is. God is sovereign. His arm is not too short to save. He has overcome the world. Now there are so many scriptures I could cite to you on this point, and I won't, you'll be relieved. But for present purposes, I just wanted to draw your attention to one scripture. That's Exodus 3 verse 14. This is uh, the passage that deals with Moses' call um, to go liberate his people. And what was God's response to Moses when he was questioning why he, who at that time was just a, a shepherd in a faraway land, had to go to the leader of a great nation, a massive empire at the time, and tell him that he had to let his slave labor go. God's response is, I'm coming with you, and I am who I am. God was telling Moses that if you know me, if you have a revelation of who I am, you will not be afraid. And the same applies to us today. We have to remind ourselves that we serve a great and powerful God and nothing is too difficult for him. So, in conclusion, let's not be like Gehazi. Let's not get casual with God. Let us not forget that we serve an awesome, powerful, and holy God. Let us not forget that our God is great and that all glory and honor and praise belongs to him. For if we diminish the reality of who God is in our own minds, if we marginalize his relevance and fail to recognize that he is at the center of all things, we risk going off track and limiting the potency of our faith. So let's press in to know God more, to seek his face, that we might have a revelation of who he is, and to walk in the fear and reverence of the Lord. Thank you.